Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. A few days ago, my daughter, Lila, who's not here this morning, um, Allie and the kids are uh, up celebrating, I'm going to join them after church today, my brother-in-law's wedding, which happened during COVID in Japan, and so we couldn't celebrate with them, they're back in Australia for the first time, and so the family's all gathered uh, for this weekend. But my daughter, Lila, who's two, was playing on some toddler play equipment that we have in our backyard. And if you know Lila, many of you do, you'll know she's a fairly adventurous and confident kid, partly temperament and partly just trying to keep up with her brother Jasper. The play equipment has a small slide on it, and she's never been afraid of even the biggest slides, but she only goes down them on her tummy feet first. So she'll get up to the top of the slide, and she'll turn around, and she'll poke her feet down, and she'll slide down, arms in the air like this. Right, And because she's getting bigger, and this is only a tiny slide, like you couldn't hurt yourself on it if you tried, I said to her, Lila, do you think that you could go down the slide on your bottom? She climbed to the top. She thought about it for a moment, and then she smiled cheekily, and she said, on my tummy, and slid down in her usual way. And this turned into a bit of a game for the next five minutes, me urging her to try something new, her making, trying to make me react by doing the opposite of what I'd suggested. And I coached and I coaxed because I wanted to try things. I want her to learn and to grow. But she wasn't having it, and so eventually I just decided to let it go for another day. I went back inside And uh, having left her out there to play for a few minutes, I hear her climbing up the back steps and coming up to the screen door, she puts her hands on the door and her face up to it and she says, Dad, 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 I slid down on my bottom. And I said, really? That's so great. Can you show me again? And I went outside with her and... She took me to the slide and she climbed up on it and she sat down feet facing first and then she looked up to make sure that I was watching and then she did it. And I could see by the way that her little heart swelled and the beaming smile that was growing on her face that she knew that she had triumphed. It's just the smallest of things, isn't it? And not for her, but it's the smallest of things. And what I think that little moment reveals is something that is true deep down in each one of us. You have a longing for victory in your life. You do. You have a desire for triumph in your circumstances. Sometimes they're 
small and relatively insignificant. And other times they're big. But in each of us, there's an existential longing in our hearts and in our stories to be victorious, to not wind up defeated, but to have fullness and success. And our passage today speaks into this human longing. If you've missed the last two weeks here at church, we're in Paul's letter to the Colossians, a short little letter that he wrote to a church that he'd had very little involvement in. He probably didn't plant the church, but he discipled the person who did, a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras, who brought the gospel to Colossae, had now returned to Paul with a list of concerns as well as joys about how the church was going. And so Paul writes to them, wanting to remind them of the things that they first heard when they became followers of Jesus. And he says, chapter 2, verse 6, As you therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted up and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If you wanted to have one headline verse for the whole of this letter to the Colossians, one verse that summarized the reason that Paul wrote it, it would be chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. In the same way, without deviating from that, without moving on from Him, continue to live your lives in Him, be built up in Him, grow in Him. There's nothing you need that is apart from Christ. See, one of the things that was going on in Colossae was that the Christians who had started out following Jesus were being tempted to move on from Him, to add to Him, to supplement him or to diminish him, to move on to something that promised to offer more. And into that context, we hear this word from God about where we will find real fullness and victory. Because here's the thing, there's going to be a lot of voices telling you where to find victory in your life. There are a lot of voices telling you where to find fullness. And what makes us distinct is that in the middle of all these voices, in the middle of these competing visions of the good life, we are a people who listen to the voice of our Father. See, this is a passage that starts and ends with emptiness and captivity. You actually see it in the language. But in the middle, like the peak of a mountain between two valleys, it shows us that there is a way to fullness and victory. Our passage is really just a warning and an invitation, and we're going to work it through that way this morning. If I could sum up the point that it wants to make, it would be this. Don't be deceived by shadow saviors. In Christ is real fullness and victory. In fact, we'll just work through it as those two points this morning. Point one, don't be deceived by shadow saviors. Point two, in Christ is fullness 
and victory. If you have your Bibles, you might like to meet me in chapter 2. I'm going to go to verse 8. I'm going to show you uh, what's going on here. Chapter 2, verse 8 begins this way. See to it that no one takes you captive. You see that? Captivity. One of Paul's warnings, one of the strongest warnings that he gives actually in any of his letters. But then you go down a little bit further, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you. And then again in verse 18. Do not let anyone disqualify you. Three explicit warnings of things these Colossians must not allow to happen. And all of them have got to do with false teaching that has been infiltrating this Colossian church. And Paul sums up these teaching in verse 17. These are only a shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. In other words, compared to these Compared to Christ, these false teachings that are tempting believers to add to Christ are mere shadow saviors. They don't have any substance. So let's just unpack it a little bit. What's going on? Verse 8, we'll go back there again. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to... To Christ. I studied uh, philosophy at university, part of my undergrad arts degree. It qualified me for no paying job except for being a chef at that international restaurant called McDonald's. But Paul is not taking a swipe at philosophy in general. In fact, a better translation of philosophy and empty deceit would be uh, empty and deceptive philosophy. He has no problem with philosophy as a discipline. What he's got a problem with is is empty and deceptive, empty and hollow philosophy. The kind that doesn't reveal truth about God and his world, but obscures it. He's warning them about worldviews that claim to tell the truth about the world, but do so without reference to Christ. And if you were here last week as we looked at Colossians 1.15 onwards, you'll know that he's the one person that you can't leave out if you want to define reality properly. And these empty and deceptive philosophies, these worldviews, they're according to human tradition. They're according to the elemental spirits of the world. And they're not according to Christ. Human tradition is easy enough to grasp. Elemental spirits is harder to work out. The word that Paul uses there in Greek is a word, stoikeia. And this word, it can refer to spiritual forces or powers, but it can also refer to the basic elements of the world, the things that make the world up. And at its most basic meaning, where it comes from, it means to order things in a row. And the way that it would have worked like this, in a pagan Greek or Roman context, a city like Colossae, each of the gods had control over a particular element of the world, and these gods were lined up, one for each thing, a god for agriculture, a god for war, a god for fertility, a god for your home, 
And this spiritual power structure of the ancient world went like this. If you want to do this, sorry, if you do this or if you offer this sacrifice to appease this God, then your crops will grow, your family will be blessed, or your army will be victorious. And so I think when Paul speaks of the elemental spirits of the world, he's talking about the ways that we think the world works. It's the stories our culture believes and tells that exercise a massive influence over people, what we worship and what we value. And these may even be the work, according to Paul, of evil spiritual forces to keep people away from Christ. See, there are rival voices of victory. I want to just highlight a couple that are out there in our culture. Maybe you've heard them before. Maybe you're tempted to listen to them yourself. Peter Enns, once a professor at one of the most widely respected evangelical seminaries in the United States, now one of the most prominent voices in the ex-evangelical group of people who are deconstructing their faith, moving away from the churches that they grew up in. In one of his books, he writes, For any one group today to think it has the best grasp on the creator of the universe is a form of insanity. Run away far and quickly when you see this. Is Peter Enns right? Does he know something the Apostle Paul doesn't know when he writes in Colossians 1.15 that the Son is the image of the invisible God? Is it foolish for Christians to believe we really do have insight into the heart of reality, not because there is anything special in ourselves, but because God has chosen to make himself known in Christ. Or when voices in the media and in academia and on social media proclaim that Christians are on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that? Which is inexorably a claim that the world is making its way towards freedom and progress. Are they right? Is the church simply a speed bump in the march of history towards enlightenment and progress, a relic from a bygone age out of touch with what it means to be truly and generously human? Do they know something that Jesus didn't know when he says in John 8 that everyone who sins is a slave to sin? but that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Or take the cultural narrative about our bodies. We're constantly receiving messages designed to make us feel insecure about our bodies or to worship our bodies or those who seem to have the perfect bodies. And we imbibe the story that if we only had a better body, a healthier or more attractive body, we'd be happy Is that true? 
Do they know something more than the writer of Proverbs who says that charm and beauty are fleeting but a woman, and we could add for this purpose, a man who fears the Lord is to be praised. All these voices, and there are more, all these stoicheia are telling you and me that there is a way to fullness and victory without Christ or by adding something to Christ. And for the Colossians, this manifested in the desire to add Jewish ritual observance to their faith. Verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. They were being tempted by some of the Jewish influences in their community to think that if they just added some of the ritualistic Jewish aspects to their faith, they would have greater spiritual experience. And they were also being tempted to add some pagan uh, spirituality to their faith. Verse 18, do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and the worship of angels, of dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking. This twin mix of, of Jewish ritual practice and of pagan spiritual asceticism was coming together and those were the things that were making them think, maybe I could be more spiritual, maybe I could have a greater experience of victory and fullness and of God if I just had these things as well. And for us, it may not be that these things are the things, but we do find ourselves constantly pressured to listen to other rival voices which tell us where we might find them. Where to find meaning and purpose. How to live the good life. What is it for you? What are the moments when you find yourself looking at others around you and their lives seem to be so full and so happy and that's partly because all you see is the Instagram curated image of their second house renovations but it doesn't matter because what it does for you is it's a voice of victory and you think if only that were true of me then I'd be full. Paul says it's all pretend. Don't be fooled. Don't, if they take you captive, these things will destroy you. It's not that Christians can't own nice things and experience nice things and do nice things, but if you let the pursuit of these things give you security and comfort and peace, they will not deliver. They cannot deliver. They promise fullness and victory, but they will leave you empty and in captivity. Don't be deceived by shadow saviors. In Christ is fullness and victory. See, that's where Paul goes after verse 8 and through the end of verse 15, this kind of mountain moment in the midst of these two valleys. He says, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's the same thing Paul had said back in chapter 1. Everything that God has is in Jesus. The whole fullness of God is in Him. In fact, eight times in these short verses, Paul uses that language of in Him just to drive home the point. But he goes on to say in verse 10, And you have come to fullness in Him 
who is the head of every ruler and authority. Just get your head around that for a second. Everything that God has is in Jesus. And you and I, if we are in Jesus, have been filled in him. It's the same word that is used to speak of Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelling in him that's used then of us. We have been brought to fullness in him. You see how incredible that is? Because if the world was made by God, and if ultimate and lasting peace and joy are only available in relationship with Him, then Jesus is the way, He's the way to be filled up like nothing else can. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then You and I need to let it sink into our souls that there is nothing that we can experience in this world that will be better than Christ. In this world, and especially in the life of the world to come. Why would you turn anywhere else to try and find fullness? But it's not only fullness. See, Christ is real victory. Verse 11, in Him... You also were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Now, what's going on here? This language of circumcision gets brought in. It's sort of hard to figure out what the purpose is. And Paul's saying if physical circumcision is a cutting off as an identity marker to show that you were a true Israelite in the Old Covenant, then what happened in Christ is that you've been spiritually circumcised. Because his death was a moment of him being cut off. And in his death, you also were cut off from the earthly loyalties that you had. The stoicheia, the elemental spirits and human traditions that promise but can't deliver. Last week, I mentioned that the key framing that Paul uses to make sense of what's happened to us in the letter of Colossians is this concept of union with Christ. And the point of the letter and the thing that we need to realize for ourselves too is that in the middle of all the angst and the struggle that we feel in our present world, it's union with Christ that can give us what we're truly after. See, what union with Christ does is it makes what's true for Him true for you. When Jesus died, you died spiritually in Him. And when He was raised, you were also raised. That's what verse 12 says. The way that salvation happens is that you and Jesus become identified together. And because of that identification, he takes on our death and our punishment for sin. And in his death, you really die. Not a physical, bodily death, but a spiritual death. A death to the old you that was opposed to God and his reign and rule. And because you died... And because Christ was raised, you also are raised with him. Whatever's true for him becomes true for you. If he dies, you die. If he has new life, you have new life. And that's why baptism has been such a significant thing that the church has done. Not just our church, but the church for 2,000 years. Because baptism is the way of being able to identify 
symbolically that reality of being joined to Christ. Of saying, my life is now caught up in his life. And so this is just a side point, but can I say this? If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, maybe you should. Maybe now's the time. Because what you say when you get baptized is a public declaration that you have died to your old self and that you now live the new life in the freedom that Jesus offers. We're going to baptize Millie Bray next week and we're going to baptize Toby Ford a couple of weeks after that, two of our little ones in our community. But we'd love to have some adult baptisms too here at church before the end of this year. And if that's you, if you think, yeah, I should do that, then come talk to me. Let's make a plan. We'll come back to Colossians. What Paul goes on to say is because you're united to Christ, you share in his victory. Verse 13 When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Ever wondered why God couldn't just rid the world of evil without having Jesus die. These verses tell us if God had destroyed all the evil in the world without Jesus coming to die, he would have had to destroy you and me too. We have a record of debt against our name. It testifies against us. And in order to save the world rather than destroying the world, Jesus needed to take that record that stood against us and nail us, nail it to the cross, which is why Christianity has forgiveness at its heart. Because sin causes harm and wrong, and it's only through forgiveness, only through washing away of sin, of cancelling that record, could God destroy evil and injustice without having to destroy you and me too. In the ancient world, when a military leader had defeated an opposing army, we don't have many examples of this in our history books, but we do have a few. They would parade the captives through the streets of the home city. And at the end of the parade would be the king of the enemy country. The king would be in chains. And he would be led through the city while the crowd jeered and sneered and shouted and whooped. And they'd take this parade of people into the central part of the city, often in front of the temple to the God that was the God of war for that nation. And there in front of the temple, they would publicly execute this king as a way of declaring the triumph of the victorious emperor and the triumph of the victorious people. But do you see what Paul's saying here? At the cross of Jesus, there is this great reversal. 
The spiritual powers and authorities, the evil one and all that exercise unjust rule and oppression in our world, they were sneering and laughing and whooping and jeering at Jesus' death. They thought that they had conquered God's king. They thought they'd triumphed over the Lord of creation, but they did not know that in that great and terrible moment as Jesus died, God was triumphing in victory. And in this humiliating, seemingly powerless act, the Lord of the universe instead was parading his enemies for all to see. The reason why all these other voices are merely shadows is because none of them has ever walked through death and come out the other side. Do you know that? There is only one. There is only one who knows the way. There is only one who can secure your life through that most terrible enemy and guarantee you the fullness of life. None of those other voices can guarantee what Jesus offers. None of those other voices have victory like Jesus has. And because we are in him, we share in that victory too. And though we don't see fullness and victory in every way yet, we proclaim that because Jesus has been raised to life and because he is Lord, that everything we want to be victorious over, sin, evil, injustice, and death, they have an expiry date. And that real change is possible even now. Last night, I was at the Sydney Swans Collingwood preliminary final of the AFL. 46,000 people, full stadium. And uh, a game that sold out within a few hours of when it was released. Second last game of the season. And it struck me when I was sitting there and as the game came down to the wire, if you don't know, should I say? Uh, If you don't know by now, the Swans got ahead by, and they won by one point at the very end. But as I was watching there at that last moment and as the siren sounded and as people leapt to their feet and cheered in victory... I was struck by just how much even a sporting match can bring out this intense sense that we who haven't even played in the game have accomplished something, that we've been included in this great moment. And I was reminded as I was watching and as I was reflecting on it afterwards that that would be nothing in comparison to what it will be like to stand on that great day when Jesus is revealed. And when all those who've been offering victory but false victory, when all those who've been opposed to him are shown to be nothing, and when all those who are in him are brought to that fullness that we all long for. And so Paul says, as we read at the beginning of those verses, just as you received Jesus the Lord, don't go anywhere else. 
continue in him, to live your lives rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, there is none like Jesus. And so as we sit here in wonder and as we are about to stand and praise him in wonder for what he has done and for how we have been included in him, how we, though we were enemies, have been made friends through him, we confess that there are just moments where we look for victory in other places and we say we don't want anything less than what Christ has to offer. And so give us a greater sense of the fullness and the victory that we have received in him, through him, because of who he is, and let us be led into joyful worship and wonder. Amen.